Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the University of Edinburgh and to this evening's Medical Detectives Lecture. I know that it says in the programme that this would be introduced by Professor Sir Timothy O'Shea, the principal of the university, and those of you with even rudimentary detective skills will be able to see that I'm obviously not him. He is not able to be with us. I'm Professor Johnston, and I'm an assistant principal for various things, one of them being public understanding of science and public information, and the Medical Detectives Lecture Series is part of that programme. The title, Medical Detectives Lectures, was uh, really inspired by the work of Conan Doyle, who, as some of you may know, uh, was a qualified doctor and he qualified here at the University of Edinburgh. He was, of course, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, he trained here and although he actually finished his student days before this lecture theatre was built, it was a matter of a year or two and he very probably would have been in this very lecture theatre at one time. And he freely said that uh, he based his character of Sherlock Holmes upon the characters who taught him, principally a Dr. Joseph Bell, who played a, paid a great deal of attention to detail and felt that you could build up the case for a particular diagnosis by picking up minor, clue, minor clues here and there, things that other people wouldn't have noticed. And in fact, medical advances up until the present time are very much based upon a similar process of noticing wee things, deducing things from them, and building up the case. And that's really what the lecture series is about. We're getting our best speakers to come and talk about advances that have been made and how they have been made. The speaker tonight is Professor Jean Manson, who is going to speak upon probably rather appropriate uh, title, Prions, Tracking the Elusive Killer. Jean. Thank you. It's very great pleasure to be here and um, a great honour to be asked to talk in this um, series of lectures. Um, I'm Professor Jean Manson. Prions have been at the heart and soul of my research for some 24 years now, so I hope during this talk I can convey to you some of the excitement of this research and some of the huge challenges that this has brought as well. What I'd, um, I'm going to do is put this together in the form of, I guess, a detective novel to some extent, and I've put it into eight separate chapters. And what I'm trying to do here is show you how we have tracked these agents from the field right through to the laboratory and back again into the field. So these are the chapters that I will present to you. Um, and if we start the process at the crime scene, which is where all good detective novels start. So this was one of the victims um, that was identified in 1986. And 1986, to some extent, is where my story starts, although you will see it later that we will go back um, many, many years before that in our search to understand this. These were one of the cows that was identified early on. And this presented with a disease that hadn't really been seen in cattle. 
The animal was showing apprehension, the back was arched, and the stance of the animal was not normal. It wasn't standing in a normal way. And what people recognised, the vets that were looking at these animals, and in 1986 we had only two of these cases being presented, that this was something unusual that they hadn't seen before. Um, and as I say, the clinical signs of this disease that the vets were looking at was what they believed was a neurological disease. So it was something that was affecting the nervous system because the animals were apprehensive. Later on, they showed fear and aggressive behavior and they weren't standing properly. And as the disease progressed, um, this led them to actually falling over. And you may well have seen some of the really, um, the, the daisy the cow was one of the ones that was shown very extensively at the outbreak of BSE, were falling over as they were trying to walk. So it was a very distressing disease. And this um, later on um, turned out to be what the crime scene was. The crime scene was actually the food that was being fed to these cattle. And the food that was being fed to these cattle had additives to it. And these additives were produced from animal protein. And we'll come back to this a little later on, but this was the cause of, of BSE. And we will, as I say, come back to this a late, little later on. In many cases, it was young animals that were affected. And it, um, there is, with these diseases, a definite age susceptibility. And in the cattle, it seemed to be the young ones that were being affected by the disease. So that was what we were being faced with in 1986. And there were obviously many questions to be asked of this. What was this? Was it a new disease? Had it been around before? If it was, where did it come from? There were only a few cases, as I said, in 1986. But, you know, was that all what's going to be? Was it a few cases that would then disappear off and never be seen again? Or was something bigger on the horizon? And a question that really wasn't been asked in 86, um, but was asked not that long afterwards, was whether this disease might transmit to humans, because humans were eating um, meat from these animals, and was it possible that humans would contract BSE? So, as these animals became sicker and eventually had to be culled, people start investigating um, the evidence within, within the animals. And because it was um, thought that we're dealing with a neurological disease in these animals, the first place to start looking for a problem was in the brain. So they started looking at the brains of these animals. And the one thing they noticed very early on was that there were large holes in the brain, which are called vacuoles. And these are simply holes in the brain which were uh, appearing in these animals. And as they looked further, if you look by electron microscopy, they started to see that there were unusual, what were called fibrils in the brain. And these were not normally seen as well. So these were two clues as to what might be going on in these animals. And the conclusion that they came to fairly rapidly, and this is only one year later, was that what they were dealing with was what was called a novel progressive spongiform encephalopathy. And it was in cattle, so that's where the term BSE came from. And BSE um, were commonly in, in the press was being called mad cow disease. So this is where um, the terms came from. Spongiform encephalopathy in bovines, not more commonly called mad cow disease. So these animals had these holes in the brain, they had fibrils in the brain. 
So what the scientists then had to do was try to understand what was happening. These were only um, a few animals that were affected, but what was happening in the cattle population. So one of the first things was, were there other similar diseases around at the time? Was it only cattle that were affected with this? And what became clear, again, relatively early on, was it wasn't only cattle. In fact, there were animals that were being kept in zoos or had come from zoos in the UK that were also showing very similar signs of disease. And in fact, the first case of BSE or mad cow disease was not actually in a cow, but was in an Ayala. And this had been diagnosed before the first cow was diagnosed. And again, you can see here that this Nyala, once, once it had finally succumbed and had been killed, had holes in the brain. And these holes were very similar to the ones that were being seen in, TSE, in, in BSE. There were other zoo animals that were affected, and one of those was the kudu. And to begin with, there were individual cases of kudu in zoos that were being detected with the same holes in the brain, the same clinical signs of disease. And later on, there was a, a herd of, of kudu of which a large percentage of that herd succumbed to this disease. And another animal that was um, being found in, in zoos was the cheetah. And the cheetah was also showing very similar signs of disease. These were not the only zoo animals. There were, other, there were other cats and there were other zoo animals that were being detected during the course of this as well. But these were the very early cases. So we had a few cattle in the in, um, UK that had been detected with this. And we had zoo animals that were being detected with this. The other thing that happened reasonably early on, and now we're moving towards 1990, was that domestic cats started displaying um, cases of, of the same similar um, cases of these diseases. And in cats, we, the numbers actually increased to around 100 cases were actually detected in, in domestic cats. So we are now around 1990 and clearly we're no longer at one or two cases of cattle affected with this disease. By 1990, we are well up this curve with many cases of BSE being detected in cattle. And as we progressed to 92, we were having around 1,000 cases a week in cattle. So we now could answer the question, we weren't dealing with isolated cases, we were indeed dealing with an epidemic. And this epidemic increased rapidly um, into the early 1990s, peaking around 92, 93. So we had an epidemic on our hands. So where had this disease come from? What, what was going on here? So to answer those questions, I've shown you some of the diseases that were starting to appear at the same time. But let's go back a little bit in history. What did we know about these diseases? What other diseases did we know about? And one of the earliest of these diseases that was identified was going back a few years to 1732. And that was scrapie and sheep. So a disease, a similar disease in sheep had been known about since 1732. And um, by this stage, um, scraping sheep was endemic in Europe, UK, and in North America. And scraping sheep, not perhaps quite so pro prominent holes, but you can see here that there's still these holes in the brain 
um, what we call vacillation. And this shows a, a brain from a sheep with scraping. There was another interesting disease, and this disease occurred only in one tribe of Papua New in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. And these individuals, a very large number of the people in this tribe, came down with a disease which was called Kuru. And this was identified and studied in depth by Carlton Gadjasek. And it was obvious that this, this disease was affecting predominantly women and children in this, in this tribe. And later on, it was um, established that this disease was being transmitted through this tribe by ritualistic cannibalism. And these individuals had the same vacillation patterns in the brain and were showing the same signs of disease as sheep scraping. There was another disease in humans, and these two individuals, Hans Kruzveld and Alson Jacob, identified this disease, and the disease became known as kruzveld jacob disease, again showing the similar vacillation of the brain. So these diseases had been known for some time, and you can see here, putting together these different diseases, the normal brain really does not show any signs of vacillation or holes in the brain. But the diseases of Kuru, CJD, and Scrapie all had this vacuolar appearance in the brain. The other thing that was common to all these diseases was protein deposits in the brain. And I showed you earlier with BSE that if you look through the electron microscope, you can see fibrils in the brains of these animals, which were called Scrapie-associated fibrils, associated with sheep Scrapie. But later on, um, with new techniques and new tools, it became obvious what this protein was. And it was a protein called the prion protein, or PRP. And this protein, all of us have this protein, um, but normally you don't see these deposits in people's brains. But in these diseases, this protein that we all have was the being deposited in the brain. And we needed to understand why this was the case. This shows that the previous one showed the spread for CJD, example of a CJD brain. Um, this one showed an example from the Kuru brain. You know, not identical ways in which it's deposited, but always the same protein being deposited in the brain. And this shows an example of the, what you're looking at here, sorry, perhaps not clear to everyone. So what I'm talking about is these brown deposits. And the reason that they're brown deposits is we use a tool to identify them that picks them up in this way. So all this brown material here is not normal in the brain, and it's in all of these diseases. Brown deposits here and in Kuru as well, and all this massive brown deposit in a brain of an animal that's been diagnosed with BSE. So we've got holes in the brain, we've got protein deposits in the brain. What else can we say about these diseases? Well, going back again in history, the other really important thing, and I guess the, the, the frightening thing from the point of view of these diseases were that they were shown to be infectious. And this has been shown for Scrapie right back in 1936, and for both Kuru and sporadic CJD. So Scrapie could be transmitted from one sheep to another sheep. And Kuru and CJD were shown to be transmissible to other um, um, primates, um, so from primate to primate, they could be shown to be transmissible. And these are the individuals that back in 1936 showed that scrapie was an infectious disease, 
And this is their original paper, which if you read French, you may be able to um, understand. Um, but an important piece of history when Scrapey was shown to be infectious. But the important thing is, I've said that Scrapey was infectious from sheep to sheep, but there was no evidence, and still is no evidence, that Scrapey has ever transmitted to humans. So you've all happily been eating bits of sheep and things, and there is really no epidemiological evidence of Scrapey having been transmitted to humans. So that's an important part of the story. However, by this stage, 92, 93, as I said, a thousand cases a week were being diagnosed. People were potentially being exposed to this infectious agent. So should we worry about it? There was no evidence Scrapey, which had been around for hundreds of years, had ever transmitted to humans. Was it likely BSE would be transmitted to humans? And there was a very big debate at the time as to whether um, people believed it would transmit or not. And people were very divided in their views on that. But importantly, and this is only 1989, so this is only three years after the first um, diagnosis of BSE, a committee recommended that we should actually set something up to monitor whether BSE was likely to go into human population. So that was as early as 1989. And so by 1990, the National CJD Surveillance Unit was established in Edinburgh. And they have, since that time, been very important collaborators of ourselves as well. So that was established to track whether anything was going to happen in the human population. And there were headlines like this appearing in the press and all over the place. So, on to chapter four. Um, and what happens here is that by 1996, and those of us working in the field can remember that day, I think, till our dying day, um, when we realized that this had transmitted to humans. So they picked up a new case of variant CJD, uh, a new case of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. They thought it looked like a new disease. There was a, an awful lot of research had to go in to establish if this was really a new disease. So what these individuals had was the holes in the brain. And these holes in the brain, if you can see from this slide, they're actually um, surrounding something that looks a little bit abnormal. And indeed that is, that is a protein deposit. Not stained with the brown stain you saw in the others, but that same protein deposit. And here you will see that this brain is full of protein deposits. So, okay, so you have individuals that have protein deposits in the brain and holes in the brain, but I've shown you sporadic CJD already. Why is this not, why is this different from what we already knew was in the human population? And there are big differences between what we call sporadic CJD and what was now being called the new variant CJD. And this was one of the most dramatic differences between the two. Sporadic CJD tends to affect people in an older age group. Um, and you can see here the red bars are pe peaking around the age group of 65 to 69, but everything is shifted toward from the 40 age group onwards. The blue bars here show you what was happening with variant CJD, and this was very, very unusual. 
because what this was affecting was a young age group and this had never been seen with sporadic CJD. So this was the first alarm that something different was happening here. And there are other differences in the clinical presentation of sporadic and variant CJD, but this was one of the very striking things. It was a different age group of the population that was being affected. So we had what appeared to be a new disease, but was this anything to do with BSE? Now this is probably going to be one of the most challenging slides I'll show you, or maybe not, we'll see. Um, so how do you establish whether BSE is the cause of this disease in humans or not? So these diseases, as I've said, are infectious. And one of the ways that we can find out if we're dealing with the same or different disease is to infect mice with these agents. And what these colours here show you, mice come in different colours and different strains. So if you take four different lines of mice, and that's what the different colours represent, and infect them with a particular agent, these, this line along the bottom shows you the time at which this has come to disease. And you can see if you take eight different cows with BSE, you get a very similar pattern right through here. So the colours are in the same, not absolutely the same um, number of days, but a similar pattern. That's what you're looking for. If you look at sheep scrapie and you take half a dozen animals with sheep scrapie, and do the same experiment. They're all over the place. There's no pattern in there at all, which suggests in sheep scrapie, you've got a whole lot of different strains of agent or different agents going on. When you look at variant CJD, it looks identical to BSE. And this was really the key experiment that told us that variant CJD had come from BSE. And this was a very important experiment that was published in 97. And so this really convinced us that variant CJD was indeed from BSE. And this led to um, massive headlines that we were going to be dealing with a massive epidemic. There were lots of estimates as to what this, estimate, uh, what this epidemic would involve, hundreds of thousands of people and all sorts of numbers were being thrown around without any real knowledge of what actually was going to happen. So what I want to do now, I've, I've shown you these are infectious diseases, but we don't really understand what's causing these diseases. So what is the infectious agent? So now I'm going to line up the suspects for you. So what I've shown you a little bit about is that we're dealing with an infectious agent. So an, an, any suspect has to be able to be an infectious agent. And also I've shown you there's many, many different forms of these disease. So it's got to be able to take on different forms as well. So if we go back to a few years before um, the 1986, and we'll go back to the central dogma, which was the dogma produced by Watson and Crick. And what they said was to have diversity, that the diversity would be contained within the DNA. That was the first statement. RNA was sort of coming into it that time. So DNA produces RNA, which then produces your protein. And we've talked a little bit about proteins here. But to get diversity, you had to go right back to the DNA. So if you want to look for diversity and you think DNA or RNA is the source of that diversity, the place you look is for a virus. 
So where are these virus diseases? And viruses come in many, as you see here, these are some wonderful pictures by, from Peter Simmons of viruses. They come in many shapes and forms. They're capable of great diversity and they're capable of changing. So to a large extent, the virus would fit the idea of the infectious agent that we're looking for here. But we had a problem because no virus could be detected in these diseases. So while it could readily explain all the diversity, it couldn't be identified. And there was another key thing about these diseases, and that was these diseases, that the agent in these diseases is extraordinarily resistant to chemical and physical destruction. And that is why the feed that those animals were getting was the cause of the infectivity, because it's very, very hard to destroy these agents. Um, and the processes that the animal um, material went through in order to food, um, produce the food was not sufficient to destroy the agents. So this is a very unusual property and it didn't really fit viruses. So then the idea perhaps was, well, okay, this you've got a virus in the middle, but perhaps it's protected by a protein. Perhaps something is there that's allowing it not to be destroyed so readily. So what the so-called Verino hypothesis came, came into being, and people were thinking about a virus with a protective protein. But, um, and looking at the timing of this, this is only um, some nine years after central dogma was introduced, um, a person called Griffin decide, uh, put forward a hypothesis of a protein that could self-replicate. And this really was totally out with what the central dogma would tell you. Self-replicating proteins were, were not an option. So this was a very radical thing to put forward. And this was refined by um, Stanley Prusner in 1982 and became what's known as the Prion Hypothesis. And this was a very, very radical hypothesis. So with this set of diseases, what we were being told is we were dealing with something totally different from what we understand from bacteria and viruses. We had an infectious agent that had completely unique properties and was very, very different. And what this picture shows you is the prion protein, or PRP as we call it, and what this protein was doing was misfolding into a different form, and it was this misfolded form that deposited in the brain. So this was the hypothesis. So to prove that your protein is infectious, um, what you need to do is get that protein in a totally pure form, put it in a test tube, and then show that that can replicate and become infectious. Simple experiment, well, not quite so simple. <laughs> so um, around 2005, people started producing papers that were claiming to do that. And many people at that time took the test tube experiment as being the final proof of the Pine hypothesis. The problem is that this wasn't a pure protein. All those test tubes that claim to be replicating the agent have something else in them, a bit of nucleic acid, a bit of something else. It's not pure. And so while many people um, take the prion hypothesis as a proven hypothesis, there are still a number of people in the field that think that we haven't really got to the heart of what the infectious agent is. 
And as you'll see, this is a paper from this year, which is saying, really, it's quite difficult to understand why a single protein alone can have all these properties. So the, set, the, the idea of what this infectious agent is, and the other problem with test tube experiments is they can never produce very much infectivity. They're not pure, and they produce very, very little infectivity. So the idea now amongst many of us is that there is something more to this infectious agent that we still haven't got to the heart of, and hopefully we may in the next few years. So let's take a little closer look at this prime protein. We know that, as I said, you've all got a prime protein inside you, which is producing the PRP um, in, in your bodies. And we know it's essential to have that protein to be able to be susceptible to these diseases. So what this experiment shows you is if you produce a mouse where you take this protein away completely, that mouse will be totally resistant to disease. You won't be able to infect that with a TSE or prion agent. Um, so it's critically important to have that. The other thing we know is that there are many variations in this protein, and I just want to focus on one because this is the human protein, and at a position known as 129, you either have a methionine, two methionines, two valines, which is M and V, or you have one of each. And they, these percentages show the difference in the human population. So 45% of the human population have two Ms, 45% have one M and one V, and 10% have two Vs. So you will fit into one of these categories. The important thing with variant CJD is that all clinical cases have been in the MM individuals. So there have been no clinical cases in MV or VV. So the question that the M want to ask is, well, are the rest of the population susceptible to variant CJD? So in this case, you have shown you you can remove the PRP from a mouse. You can also add other PRPs in. So you take the mouse one out and you put the human one in. And as I've said to you, there's three different forms, so you can put each of those forms in separately. And then you can ask the question as to susceptibility to variant CJD. And we did this some time ago. And the results of that experiment were, were somewhat surprising because what we established in those ex experiments was that all individuals were susceptible to variant CJD. But the prediction was that many of those would be extremely long incubation times and, in fact, may never develop a clinical disease. So what I want to go on to now is how we know we've got a disease, we know we've got a disease, uh, had a disease in the cattle population and the human population. How do we deal with that? So this is, um, shows you what's happening with variant CJD. And in fact, the cases are disappearing year on year. It peaked in 2001, and the cases are clearly disappearing. And again, this is the MM individuals that I've talked about. The reason, probably the foremost reason, that the epidemic has been um, relatively contained is because, again, actions were taken very early on. And the particular action that's important here is the so-called SBO ban. And what that ban, um, that ban was introduced um, around 19, 1989, 1990. That stopped certain tissues from the animals going into the human food chain. And that is probably the single most 
um, effective thing that has stopped um, the epidemic becoming worse in the human population. However, we now know that variant CJD is not restricted to the UK. There are cases worldwide. And one of the concerns was, well, are these all the same cases? Um, are we dealing with the same agent here? So some time ago, we took on looking at some of the worldwide cases. And what we've established with that study is that we do believe that all these cases worldwide are the same strain of agent. So there are some 49 cases in different countries throughout the world. Um, but we do believe it's all the same agent that we're dealing with in this. The other problem with variant CJD is that individuals have infection and um, disease in the brain, but it's not restricted to the brain. Peripheral tissues have this protein deposited as well. So the infectivity is not restricted to the brain of these individuals. So one of the questions that was asked again relatively early on was whether once you've got a disease in the human population, can that now pass between humans? And one of the areas of concern was blood as a route of transmission. And because of that, again, action was taken very early on. So this is less than a year after the first case of variant CJD was, um, was shown. Um, the blood transfusion services put in a lot of measures to ensure that the safety of blood. And um, these are the various measures. You can, you can see these measures on, on the Department of Health website. But as I say, they were introduced very early to protect uh, individuals from um, variant CJD. So at that time, we took on a study because we didn't know the answer to this. Was blood likely to be infectious? And with this, with this type of experiment, what we've done is taken a sheep that is infected with a TSE agent and taken blood from that in exactly the same way as you would in a human blood transfusion service, using actually, and this was done in very close collaboration with the human, um, Scottish National Blood Transfusion Service, and then transfuse it into sheep in exactly the same way as you would with a human, and ask whether the infected sheep can transfer infectivity to the, the donor. And the results of those studies did prove that blood was actually a very efficient route of transmission of these agents. And um, unfortunately, around the same time as we were establishing this in, in the sheep experiments, it became clear that um, there were cases in the human population that were probably caused by blood transfusion. And these were two of the publications in 2004 that established that. However, there have been very few cases that are associated with blood transfusion, and there is extensive surveillance going on in this as well from um, the um, CJD surveillance unit. And probably the reason, because as I said, it's a very efficient route, the reason there are so few cases is because these, these um, things were put in very early to protect um, the blood from, from variant CJD. Very briefly, cases of infection. We knew in animal um, experiments and also in the sheep populations that you could have disease without showing clinical signs. So can such um, individuals exist and can they, be, um, can they transfer infection to other individuals? 
And because of this, a number um, two very large studies have been done in the UK looking at the, for the presence of abnormal protein in appendix and tonsil samples. And these have been anonymized um, tissue samples and they have been enormous studies. And the early one was in 2004, which came up with a possible figure of one in 4,000 individuals that may be carrying infection. And a more recent study published um, this year has suggested the figure could actually be around one in 2,000. But these individuals may never develop disease at all. So we have established that individuals that have infection in the periphery, um, the presence of the abnormal protein is, um, does go along with infectivity in these individuals. So just to in, in sort of close in on this chapter, what, I, what I'm telling you now is really that we have a wide variety of animals out there that carry these infections. We now know in one case, and in one case only that we're aware of, that these diseases can pass from the animal into the human. So we have to be more aware of the possibility of human transmission of these diseases. And until we eradicate them from the animal population, this risk will always occur. There's a disease just now known as chronic wasting disease, which is affecting deer throughout Amer North America. It's in wild deer populations as well as in farm deer populations. And of course, once it's in wild animals, there is a danger that predators of those animals are also picking up these agents. So this is, it, it's, it's a very interesting disease. It's a highly transmissible disease. We don't believe this is in, in Europe at present, um, but we don't know for certain, but we don't believe it's there. And we don't know, even if it is there, if this will be transmissible to humans. But what we're trying to do with all these animal diseases is get some feel. And we don't have perfect tools to do this. But the experiments that I showed you where we have a human gene and ask whether that allows a disease to be transmitted to mice is one of the, the ways that we try to do this. So we're trying to establish with, if there's new diseases, whether these are likely to transmit to humans. But these are very, very challenging experiments to do. So the other last thing I want to just talk about a very little bit about, I've talked about how you can stop the process going between different animals, between different species, but also within an individual. Is there a way that we can actually stop the process within an individual? This is a, a lovely picture of a neuron from Tom Gillingwater, who actually works in this building. This neuron here in green is making connections with other cells. Sometimes those connections will be with other neurons. Sometimes they'll be with other types of cells. And in this case, I think it's muscle cells that are, are connecting with this neuron. So this is a very healthy, happy neuron. And what happens is that these connections start to break down. The picture on the right here shows you, it's a bit hard without pointing to it, shows you what a, a happy connection looks like. If you compare that with the picture on the left where we've got some black surrounded by a square, this, is, this connection is starting to deteriorate. And so the, the neuron is no longer able to connect with the cells it wants to connect with. And we know this happens very early on in the disease. What we don't know is how the misfolded protein is related to these early events. And we're trying very hard to establish this connection now. And the reason this is challenging is 
that the protein can deposit in very different ways in the brain. It's not always in the same areas. It's not always in the same cells. You can sometimes see neurons dying where you can't see any protein. So we don't really know what the connection is. And we can have forms of these diseases where it's actually very hard to pick up these proteins, and yet the neurons are dying. So we're trying to establish this connection between protein deposition and neurodegeneration. The other thing we don't know is what cells are involved. We've got a lovely neuron in the middle here, but that cell is connecting with other, there are many other cells in your brain. And the connections between those other cells are critically important to having a healthy brain. And these other cells are clearly involved in the disease process, but we don't at this stage know how. But um, on a very positive note, um, this is an experiment which actually we haven't yet published, but um, we're just about trying to do this just now. What we've tried to do, these diseases have long, long phases where there is no clinical problem at all. So this dark blue is a preclinical phase where you'll show no signs of disease at all. The red is the clinical phase. It's a short, sharp clinical phase, but the preclinical phase, in the case of Kuru, this preclinical phase can be 50 years. So it's a long, long period. So here we've asked the question, if we interfere with this disease process, and this is going back to similar experiments I've showed you before, taking the prime protein out, how, how, at what point can you actually start to treat these diseases? And this was a very surprising experiment because what this tells you is yellow is early on and yellow, you're extending the, the preclinical phase way out. You're not changing the clinical phase, but the preclinical phase is a much longer phase. But if you go to green in the middle of your preclinical phase, you're still having a massive extension of that preclinical phase. And even just about at the point where you're starting to go into clinical disease, you can have a big, big impact if you interfere at that point. It's only when the individual is actually showing clinical signs of disease that you have no effect by interfering. So this, I think, is very positive. What it says is that we have a very, very wide therapeutic window for being able to treat these diseases. So understanding how to treat them um, will give us uh, this wide therapeutic window. I just want to finally um, raise something that is, is an issue, I think, um, that is being raised um, to some extent in the public domain as well just now. And that is the, the issue of um, other diseases. These are diseases of protein misfolding. You're probably all familiar with Alzheimer's disease that affects many more of the population than prion diseases. That is also a disease of protein misfolding. You have a different protein misfolded in the brain, but it is a misfolded protein in the brain. And we believe that these diseases are going to have very, very sim similar um, therapeutic possibilities for therapeutic intervention because we believe the mechanisms, how the misfolded protein kills the neuron is going to be similar in all these different diseases. So we're hoping that the extensive research from one of these diseases will impact on our way, our ability to treat and, and interfere with the other diseases. And the synapse, as I mentioned to you before, which we know is an early event, is an early event in all these diseases. So at the bottom here, you see one with the healthy connections, a happy synapse. The middle one is starting to look not quite so good. And by the time you get to the top, the, the connection is not there at all. 
And we know this is the focus of all these diseases. If we can understand these very early events, we have the ability to treat. One of the things that's certainly being raised just now, prion diseases, as I've told you, are highly infect are infectious diseases. And people have started to start to think, well, okay, are all protein misfolding diseases infectious? And this is a subject that is, is, is under extensive debate just now. Um, we believe um, from the research that we're doing that there are different mechanisms of misfolding. And I've told you a little bit about, we think there are elements to infection that are not simply the misfolded protein. So I think it's very likely that all these diseases are not infectious, but this, as I said, is a, is a subject for great debate just now. And indeed, we have a, a meeting um, in the Roslyn Institute um, next month, which is addressing this very issue. So are different protein misfolding diseases infectious? Um, there is a possibility, but I think we've really got to look at this um, as a very serious issue. And I think you have potentially two pathways. A protein misfolds, one will lead to an infectious outcome, the other pathway will lead to a non-infectious outcome. And I think this is probably where the other protein misfolding diseases, but this is an area that we really, as, as yet, do not fully understand as an important address. And as I said, when a protein misfolds, you get many, many different forms. You get little bits of misfolded protein, you get huge aggregates of misfolded protein, you get the fibres I've shown you. We don't know which of these forms, if any, is infectious. We don't understand it. So it's really important now that people have raised the issue of other protein misfolding potentially being infectious to address this as soon as possible. So the conclusions are very short. Um, in my view, the final chapter is yet to be written. There are still many, many questions surrounding these diseases. They are absolutely fascinating diseases. Um, they have, it's been a real challenge um, and an excitement to work in this area for the last 24 years. But we have still many, many questions. We have think have progressed a long way since 86. And now we are developing new tools to study the brain in particular, which is a very exciting area. But we have many, many um, questions still to answer in these diseases. And I want to acknowledge um, a number of people in particular, particularly the staff of what used to be the Neuropathogenesis Unit and is now the Division of Neurobiology in the Roslyn Institute, the National CJD Surveillance Unit, who we work extensively with, and the Scottish National Blood Transfusion Service, who we've worked with for, for many ages now. And a few individuals that have been hugely important, both in my research and um, also in helping me put this talk together. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much indeed, Jean. That was absolutely fascinating. You described really very, very skillful, inventive, and excellent work, but you've put it over like a mystery story, a frightening and dramatic mystery story. Actually, a wee bit more dramatic, I thought, than most of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> but, I mean, it was, for, I mean, I suppose the younger members of the audience won't remember this, but the older ones will remember it very well. It was very frightening. <laughs>
There were initially just one or two little threads in the more sensational newspapers, and then every day there was stuff about collapsing cows, pictures of a cabinet minister feeding a hamburger to his daughter as though he was a criminal. Then <laughs> if you were flying up and down uh, to London, you would, you would fly over the borders, and there were all these dreadful mm. fires where they were burning animals. And if you were a doctor, it was really very frightening. Um, the cases were not common. There were not a lot of these young cases with variant CJD. But they did exist. I did see the clinical material myself. It was absolutely horrible. They went down, their health declined dreadfully, really very quickly, in a very, very mm. variable pattern. And I think everyone was frightened when they saw a young person with a rather atypical uh, clinical picture that might relate to the brain just exactly what were they looking at. And things have got better, but they might not be all right. Is that not the case? <laughs> and uh, it certainly, I thought, was fascinating and very, very thought-provoking. And I would like you to join with me in thanking uh, Jean for that absolutely excellent lecture. Thank you so much. This production is brought to you by 